Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is today's second reading from Hebrews chapter 9. We'll hear again these words. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of our God, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, who is both our righteous judge and our gracious Savior. Have you ever received an unexpected gift? It's kind of nice when that happens. The flower delivery truck pulls into the driveway, the delivery driver gets out and he hands you a long box filled with 12 long stem red roses. For me? You're at work. Your fellow employees call you into the break room where you find a cake covered in candles and a rousing rendition of happy birthday. And when they finish, you say, for me? Just before hunting season, your dad hands you a brand new rifle complete with scope and case and all the accessories all zeroed in for you. For me? Did you really do all this just for me? I mean, it just feels good when family and friends go out of their way to do something nice for us. My friends, when our God does something for us, undeserving sinners that we are, when our God does something for us, it is just astounding. In the portion of his holy word before us today, we see how our God goes out of his way for us and for our salvation. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ appeared once for us, and Jesus is coming again. He's making another appearance also for us. It is unclear who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. However, the message of this little book is clear. The message is, Christ is superior. The unknown author of this letter wrote to a group of Jewish Christians who thought that faith in Jesus Christ was important, but that they also had to continue keeping the old ceremonial law if they wanted to be saved. For 1,500 years, the Jewish people had been keeping this religious code, which was passed down by God through Moses, with all of its ceremonies and with all of its sacrifices. Now, this system of rituals had a clear purpose. It was meant to point forward to the promised Messiah, the coming Savior. But now, there was no longer any need for the sacrifices and Sabbath days to point forward to the Messiah because he had arrived. He had already come in the person of Jesus Christ. But these Christians struggled with this, and I think understandably so to a point. I mean, they had followed the law of Moses all their lives. Their people had followed that law for centuries. But here's the really sad part. By and large, the Jewish people had lost sight of the real meaning of those ceremonial laws. Uh, instead of seeing these rituals and sacrifices at the temple as pointing forward to and picturing the promised Savior, people began to see them simply as a means to an end. If you just went through the motions of, of doing these rituals, if you showed up at the temple at the right times, then God would accept you. You'd be okay. 
The writer of this letter writes to these people to warn them about this very dangerous attitude. They were focusing, you see, on an inferior, really a hopeless way to salvation. They needed instead to focus on the one who is superior, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to trust in him alone for their salvation. And that's exactly what these words of our text are driving at. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the high priest and the priest, they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. They did this day after day after day all year long. And the high point of all this came on the great day of atonement, once a year, when the high priest himself would slaughter a bull and collect its blood in a big bowl. And he would carry that bowl into the inner sanctum, the most holy place of the temple. He would dip his hands into that bowl and he'd sprinkle the blood onto the Ark of the Covenant over and over again. Then he'd go back out and he'd do the same thing with the goat's blood. And then when that was all done, he would come out with his hands still dripping with blood. He would place his hands on the head of a specially chosen animal known as the scapegoat. He would confess his sins and the sins of the people as he did so, symbolically transferring their sins onto that scapegoat, which would then be released into the wilderness where it would die all alone. This was repeated year after year after year. And again, it's sad that so many thought that as long as you just did those outward things, as long as you went through the motions of those sacrifices, then everything was going to be okay. The people, by and large, were missing the gospel content that was brought by those sacrifices and ceremonies. They had forgotten the picture of the promised Savior of the world. You know, it may seem like there's not much there that we can relate to. And yet, my friends, we at times are guilty of, of trying to at least help a little bit, help God a little bit, when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, sometimes we think, somewhere in the back of our minds, that, that we can make up for the ugliness of our sins with the beauty of our good deeds. You know, when we're feeling a little bit guilty about something, we think, well, I'll just I'll put a little more in the collection plate this week, or I'll, I'll pray a little harder this week, and that will take care of things. After a night of sin, we think an hour in the Lord's house will put us back in his good graces once again. We think if we just make a sacrifice here, a sacrifice there, if we really try to, to be good boys and girls, well, then, then God is, is going to smile on us. We'll be okay. But here's the thing. Such sacrifices do nothing to get rid of sin. In fact, trying to earn our own forgiveness or help God a little bit with our forgiveness is itself sin. And it never, ever works. What we can never do for ourselves, our Lord Jesus has done for us completely. And what he did, my friends, works. He appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Christ is a high priest, a high priest unlike any other. As the hymn writer puts it, he is himself the victim and himself the priest. He sacrificed himself for us. 
He came to the cross, not with somebody else's blood, but with his own holy and precious blood, the blood of the God-man. He shed that holy blood. He gave up his life in payment for every single sin. And the Lamb of God does not need to keep sacrificing himself over and over again, year after year after year. It is finished, he said. Every last sin has been paid for. My friends, because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven. Because of the perfect blood that he shed, Satan is defeated forever and ever. Because of that perfect redemption that he brought, our sins no longer have mastery over us. Because of his empty tomb, Satan has been emptied of its power once and for all. And eternal life is ours. You know, the world just observed the centennial of the end of the First World War. During that war, a French soldier was severely wounded. Uh, in fact, he was wounded so badly, his arm was so mangled by a shell that it could not be saved. It had to be amputated. The surgeon who did that sat by his bedside until he woke up and he delivered the bad news. He said, I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you've lost your arm. He was really surprised by that young soldier's response. He looked at him and he, he smiled a little bit through the pain and he said, Sir, you don't understand. I did not lose my arm. I gave it for France. My friends, Jesus did not lose his life. He gave it for us. And then he took it back again for us. And then he ascended into heaven for us. He entered into God's presence. He entered into God's presence not to see God, but to be seen by God. He presented himself before the Father for examination. And the Father accepted him as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And again, remember, Jesus did all of this for us. That was just his first visit. He's coming again. What's he going to do for us then? You know, we regularly confess in the creeds that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Every human being, dead or alive, is going to have his day in court. Does that thought frighten you? Does the thought of standing before the judicial bench of the almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing God scare you to death? I mean, nobody wants to go to court. Court is a scary place. Court is scary whether you are uh, contesting a speeding ticket or you're on trial for murder. It's a place that people try to avoid. Court is a place where evidence is examined, charges are brought, and punishment is handed down. And so we all do all we can to avoid going to court. Well, you can't avoid this court. Your day in court is coming and there is no appeal process. You are going to be judged. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, our text tells us. You live, you die, you face judgment. That happens once. That's how it works. And through the pen of his prophet Malachi, our God describes for us what this great judgment day is going to be like. He says, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. Doesn't sound like much fun, does it? And of course, for the unbeliever, it won't be. For the unbeliever, it will be a day of unmatched and unimaginable terror. But my friends, you do not have to be afraid of that day. In fact, you can look forward to it. You can eagerly anticipate it. You can pray for it to come earnestly. 
Because remember, the one who is appearing again to judge you is the one who first appeared to go to the cross as your substitute and save you. Jesus himself is your judge. Isn't that wonderful to know? Jesus once said this, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. But perhaps, though, our fear still is that Jesus is going to expose us, that he's going to show the world all of our sinful thoughts and words and actions, that he's going to show our shame to everybody. Certainly, he knows our crimes, doesn't he? Every single one. But remember, he also paid for those crimes. Every single one. Jesus' second coming is not going to be about our sins. He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is coming again, you see, to give us the ultimate result of everything that he did for us. He's coming to bring us our salvation. He's coming again for us. You know, right now, we enjoy the peace of our Savior's full forgiveness, don't we? But when Jesus comes again, we're going to enjoy the perfect peace of a sin-free existence in heaven. Right now, we enjoy an abundant life. A life that is just filled with tremendous blessings from our God. Blessings for both body and soul. Next week we're going to take special time out of our schedules to give thanks to God for all of those many blessings. When Jesus comes again, we are going to enjoy a paradise of blessings that simply goes beyond our imagination. Jesus is coming again for us, and so we eagerly look forward to and anticipate that day. But my friends, what do we do until the day arrives? How do we pass the time? I don't know about you, but when I know I'm going to be waiting, I like to pass the time constructively. If I know I've got to go to the doctor or the dentist or the DMV, I almost always bring along a good book. And if we know as a family that we're going to spend a long day in the car, we bring along music and movies and sometimes books on CD. And, and even when we caught, get caught waiting that we weren't expecting to be waiting, well, we always have our phones to play with, right? Maybe that's not the most constructive way for us to use our time. As we wait for our Lord's return, our God wants us to use the time constructively. And you know what? In love for him who has given us every blessing in Christ, we are eager to do just that. It is our joy to gather here in God's house each week with our fellow believers, to hear the word of our God, to receive his forgiveness in word and sacrament, to shout his praises, and to spur one another on toward a life of love and good deeds. It is our joy to study his word. Every chance that we get with our fellow believers in Bible class or in our favorite easy chairs or around the kitchen table in our homes. It is our joy to prioritize the time on our calendars and the money in our wallets and the talents and abilities that our God has given us for service to him in his kingdom. It is our joy to serve our neighbor in love by simply living within our vocations, by simply carrying out our jobs faithfully. And it is our joy, my friends, until Jesus comes again to share the precious good news of the one who came once for us and who is coming again to give us salvation. It is always wonderful to receive a surprise gift. 
My friends, what amazing and surprising gifts our God has given us in Christ. Forgiveness for every sin. A new life. A life of peace and power and purpose. And of course, eternal salvation in heaven. We look at those gifts laid out before us and we simply marvel at them. And we ask, for me? Yes, my friends, for you. Even for me. Thanks be to God. Amen.